If you would this morning, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In the next few verses, it'll let us know where many had gathered together from, from many different nations. Folks had gathered together for the Passover, and so they were here together in the city of Jerusalem. The apostles began to speak, and as they began to speak, uh, the scriptures say that these men were able to hear in their own native language. It says they were all amazed, verse 12, and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Because in the verse before it says, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Others mocking said these men are full of new wine, but Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said to them, ye men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose, and it was but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders. And he goes on to begin to defend then in the next few verses. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is now seated at the right hand of God. Here in Acts chapter 2, we find the Spirit of God is introduced in the most uh, uh, manifest way up to this point, really, in all the Word of God. In the Old Testament, you will find that God the Father takes center stage. In the Gospel accounts, the Lord Jesus Christ takes center stage. In the book of Acts, you're going to find a lot of focus, though, on the Spirit of God, just as Jesus had told his disciples in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John, when he let them know that if he would go away, another comforter would come, that that comforter would guide them into all truth and bring all things to remembrance to them, and the comforter would be with them, guide them, lead them, and strengthen them throughout their ministry. So in the book of Acts particularly, we see a lot of focus on the Spirit of God. Now Jesus said of the Spirit, he would not testify of himself, but of those things uh, that God would show him and tell him, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God did not come to boast of himself, but rather to promote the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do see here in the book of Acts particularly, you will see him mentioned throughout the writings of Paul and the other apostles. But here you will see him on greatest display, his power and his presence in the book of Acts. Again, it makes sense because the Lord had promised this to the disciples shortly before his death and his resurrection. He had told them before he ascended that it wouldn't be very many days that they would be endued with power from on high. So here the apostles are going to experience something on the day of Pentecost that Jesus had told them would come, but yet they, they, couldn't, they couldn't grasp it until it would actually occur. Now here is the Apostle Peter who, when some men began to mock, now some were in wonderment about what was going on here, others mocked. The Apostle Peter, remember, just a few days before this, standing by a fire warming himself, there was a little girl that said that he had been with Jesus, and he ultimately denies even knowing Jesus with cursing. That's how fearful Jesus was prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now that he's endued with power from on high, this man is he's speaking to the very men that nailed Jesus to the cross. The very individuals that had placed the nails in his hands and feet are standing in this crowd, and the apostle Peter indicts them with the crime of putting to death the prince of life, the son of God. Who can explain the change in the Apostle Peter from denying Jesus to a little girl to now standing before the very soldiers that pierced the hands and feet of Jesus with such boldness? 
The only answer to that is now that he's been endued, as Jesus said, with power from on high. This is something that's extraordinary. This is not of Peter himself. This is of courage that comes by the Holy Ghost. So it tells us when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the day of Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover. So Jesus dies around Passover. As you know, he's three days and three nights in the tomb. Then he spends about 40 days with the disciples, and then he goes away, and there's about a week between the ascension of Christ and the day of Pentecost. This was a time of great feasting and joy. Uh, The Passover had occurred. Uh, The sorrow of the Passover was behind, and now we have a feast of of, uh, joy, a feast of, of plenty, a piece of great gladness among the people of God. And so here, when this day is fully come, notice what it says. They were all in one accord, or with one accord, in one place. If you want to know why we worship together, as we do, uh, every Sunday morning, hopefully in agreement, but especially in one place, it's because of this verse. This verse says the early saints met together, and they were in agreement about what they were meeting for, and they did so in one location. They weren't separated by categories of age, of stations of life, none of those things. It didn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile, whether you were wealthy or poor, whether uh, you were viewed as a sinner or a saint, it didn't matter. They were all in one accord in one place. And we maintain that's the proper way to worship uh, even in this present day. It's how they did it in the days of Jesus, in the days of the apostles, and the true New Testament church has maintained that practice throughout the ages. We do believe in Sunday school as old Baptists. It happens hopefully every Sunday at 1030, both through the singing of the hymns that hopefully teach not only the children but the aged, but also the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ was effective for little children, and it was effective for the aged. Uh, Think about in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, whose lunch was it that Jesus used uh, to take the bread and the fishes to feed the multitude? A little lad went out to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't separated out in some other uh, room with some uh, Sunday school instructor teaching him about the Lord. He was right there in the midst of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, you will find the aged down to the young in one place surrounding the Lord Jesus. And that's how it's to be in our day as well. Whether you're an infant or whether uh, you're near a hundred, it doesn't matter. We're to gather in one assembly, in one place, and we're to gather around the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Our gathering is to be in His name, to exalt Him, to magnify Him, and through that, we'll be strengthened and we'll be encouraged. So it says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly, uh, this was not planned on the disciples' part. Uh, Here we will see, just as Jesus said about the Spirit of God in John chapter 3 when He spoke to Nicodemus, he says, the wind bloweth where it listeth, where it desires. He says, you can hear the sound there, but you cannot tell from whence it cometh or whether it goeth. He says, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit of God. So here the Spirit is not going to be constrained. It's not going to be told what to do. It's going to empower whom he will, when he will, and how he will. So here in Acts chapter 2, they're all assembled in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. It says it was as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. Now it says in verse 3, there appeared unto them cloven, that means divided tongues, and it says um, as of fire, not that they literally were fire, but as of fire, and it set upon each of them. Why, Why this imagery? Well, obviously, they're about to talk with people that have several or different languages than themselves. And the Holy Ghost in coming upon them is going to show them that uh, language is not going to be a barrier to God. See, God is the one who brought diversity of languages upon the earth in the first place. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you find uh, the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, You'll find that there were men gathered together, uh, all men of the earth, and they were uh, raising up a tower to the heavens to make a name for themselves. And God comes down and he confounds the languages there at Babel. And men spread out. Some, uh, obviously, they couldn't understand one another. And from that, man began to dwell in different portions of the earth. Well, now in Acts chapter 2, God's going to essentially do the reverse. God who confound the languages, if he's able to confound them, now he's able to uh, remove them out of the way. It will not be a barrier. 
So when you find in the word of God, the Bible talking about speaking in tongues, it's specifically talking about God using the spirit of God to aid man to speak languages or for men to understand languages that they've never formally studied before. In this time of the apostles, it would be a very short age in which they lived. Uh, Jesus has left the earth. Uh, most of the apostles will be dead within about 30 years of the departure of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one exception to that. That's the apostle John who would live to about 80, 100. So again, the apostolic era would be a very short amount of time. In high school, I took two years of Spanish. And by the end of my second uh, year of Spanish, I, I wasn't necessarily fluent in it. I could understand it fairly well and I could speak it to some degree. In fact, uh, I had an experience uh, between my junior and senior year of uh, high school after I had taken Spanish two, I was working in a laundry or a dry cleaner. And so um, every other person working in there, were all, they were all Hispanic all in the back. Now up front at the cash register, there was uh, a white lady there. But anyway, everybody in the back was uh, Spanish. And my job, look, <laughs> my job was to inspect that every garment had been done correctly. And so when I send a piece of uh, clothing out to a dry cleaner, it didn't come back right today. I get quite upset about it. And so it goes, but anyway, one day I was early on the job and um, meaning new to the job. And these women began to speak about me. Now, they were not unkind, what they were saying, and I let them go on till lunchtime. And when we all went to sit down at lunch, I began to converse with them in Spanish. And they realized that this white young man had heard everything that they had said all morning long, and they were kind of thinking back, well, what did we say about it? Again, it was nothing negative. But the, I had to study that for two years to, to be able to converse in some small way. Uh, even now, sometimes I encounter folks that speak Spanish, and there's some uh, that I still recall that I can uh, somewhat carry on a conversation, but it's extremely difficult. I would have to go back through coursework uh, to learn that all again. That's just one language. Now, imagine as you read the book of Acts and you begin to uh, look at the maps in the back of your Bible, the different places that Paul and others would be traveling to preach, there were multitudes of languages that they would encounter. They did not have time to study those languages. And so the Spirit of God, one of the primary things the Spirit would do in the life of the apostles and the work of the early church as the apostles were spreading the gospel outside of Judea was to remove the barrier of language so that those men could preach and those to whom they uh, were preaching to could understand. And we see that first on the day of Pentecost. Notice again, it tells us in verse 11, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Now you can read through there and see about all the different nations that are listed out there. Now these apostles, they're Galileans. They, they speak uh, really a rough form of Hebrew. They're not polished men. Uh, and so for these individuals to have heard them in their own native tongue, notice they're amazed by this. It says they were all amazed and were in doubt. Uh, and here's what they say one to another. What meaneth this? What's this all about? Others mocking said these men are full of new wine. You know, you always got some in the crowd like that. That's just the way it is. And so you just have to put those kind of folks out of mind and don't put focus on them, but put focus rather on the ones you see that the God of heaven is working in. So here it says, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, verse 4, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This wasn't something they controlled. This is, was not something they guided. This is something the Spirit gave them utterance to be able to do. So here we find that the Holy Ghost had an ability, a power of himself to grant to these apostles to be able to speak to men about the wonderful works of God. And here we find, again, the Spirit of God introduced in a very, uh, very relevant way colorful way, a very interesting way. Again, in the Old Testament, primarily God the Father is in focus. In the Gospels, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is in focus. Here we're going to see the activity of God the Holy Spirit. There are some that have no trouble in uh, viewing God the Father as God, having personality. 
understanding that he shows love and grace, has a will, has a purpose, has a mind, has a heart, has grieved, so on and so forth. We can see that about the Lord Jesus Christ, especially as he becomes incarnate. And he's the son of Mary and the son of God. But there are many in this world that when we come to God, the Holy Spirit, or God, the Holy Ghost, began to wonder how in the world do you define God, the Holy Spirit? Is God, the Holy Spirit, an it or is he a he? Well, according to the word of God, the Holy Spirit is a he. He is the third in the Trinity. And that doesn't mean that he ranks below God, the Father and God, the Son. He's co-equal with God. Uh, he's co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Son. And every power that God the Father has and displays, and every power that God the Son has and displays, also God the Holy Spirit possesses as well. Three of the main attributes of God to prove that God is God is that He's omniscient, He knows all things, that He's omnipotent, He is all-powerful, that He's also uh, so omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. A fourth thing, that He's eternal. And all of those things can be proved about the Spirit of God as well. In fact, it was David that said in Psalm 139, he said, where can I flee from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? Even there in Psalm 139, he recognized that it was the Spirit of God uh, that he could never flee away from, showing that even God the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. God the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He knows all things. He also knows the mind of God. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. The Spirit of God has a mind of His own. Now, He's in total unity with God the Father and God the Son. But God the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force uh, that is uh, just some kind of... Um, a wind that moves without any guide or any purpose. The Holy Spirit is a person. He shows personhood in the fact that he also has a will. That he also uh, can be grieved. In fact, the Apostle Paul would tell us in Hebrews chapter 4 that you and I are not to grieve who? The Holy Spirit of God. So here in Acts chapter 2, you find that the Holy Spirit also has a sovereign will and gives to men utterance as he will. We also find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when the Apostle Paul begins to speak about the diversity of gifts given among men in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, he lets us know that there's apostles, there's gifts of ministry, gifts of help, uh, gifts of all different sorts that God has placed in his church. But which, is, uh, which uh, of the uh, Trinity is it attributed to that gives those gifts? It's the Spirit of God, and he says, and he, the Spirit, gives to men as he will, or as he purposes, showing again his sovereign power. Now, his sovereign power, again, never is uh, disjointed with the mind of God the Father and God the Son. So if God the Holy Spirit gives to you a gift, it's in accordance with the will of God the Father and God the Son, because once more, they can never be disconnected their purpose their will is always perfectly in unison uh, never at all indivisible uh, divisible it's always together and so if you find God the Holy Spirit in activity you can always know that he's working conjointly with God the Father and God the Son we find the Spirit of God is found in the opening verses of the Word of God in the beginning Genesis chapter 1 God created the heaven and the earth Chapter 2, we mentioned uh, two Sundays ago that the word there, in the beginning, God is Elohim, meaning the plural God, meaning at least three. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible goes on to say that the earth was uh, without form and void. It was dark, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, I don't understand much about that. I just know that the Spirit of God is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And you'll find the Spirit of God mentioned throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 51, when David is uh, begging for God's cleansing power after the sin with Bathsheba, he understood that he needed the Holy Spirit to come into his heart and renew within him a right spirit and to restore to him the joy of God's salvation. He knew it would be the Spirit of God uh, to do that. In the book of Zechariah chapter 4, when Zerubbabel is commanded by God to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar had torn it down uh, 70 years before, you're going to find that uh, God will tell Zerubbabel, it's not by your might 
Not by your power, he says, but my spirit saith the Lord of hosts. It would be the spirit of God that would empower that man Zerubbabel to rebuild the house of God there in the book of Zechariah. So we find the spirit of God is found in the Old Testament. Again, he's not clearly in focus as much as God the Father is in the Old Testament. But again, as we move to the book of Acts, you're going to find it very much on display. Turn with me for a moment to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, we find somewhat of a, well, it is a terrifying event. We find that there are two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira. I'm sorry, every time that I think about this, and I don't remember which couple it was, Brother Ronald married, but I, I remember hearing the story that every time that he would speak of them, Meaning to talk about Priscilla and Aquila, he would compare them to Ananias and Sapphira the whole time and through that wedding. Every time I read Acts 5, I think of poor brother Ronald doing that to that poor couple. Anyway, um, it says a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and bought a certain part and laid, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now, if God the Holy Spirit is nothing more than some impersonal force that can't be touched nor can impact our lives, then what would it matter if Ananias is lying to the Holy Ghost? Why didn't he say, Ananias, why are you lying to Jesus, the Son of God? Why are you lying to God the Father? That's not what uh, Peter says. He says, again, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. Now to give a little context, in the chapter before we find that the Jews in Jerusalem are struggling financially. If you know, if you've left the synagogue, if you left temple worship uh, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be cast out. Uh, remember the man that was born blind and Jesus comes and heals him? And even his parents are questioned. They said, he's of age, let him answer for himself. You know why they said that? Because they were fearful of being cast out of the temple. That meant if you were cast out of the temple, you could not go to your family's home and sit down to supper with them. Uh, nobody would buy from you and you couldn't sell. All of a sudden, your uh, way of earning a living came to an end. They took it seriously when they put somebody outside the te uh, temple or outside the synagogue. And so here are these individuals who are following the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 4. They've been put out of the, uh, the temple. They're not allowed uh, to sit down at a meal with their mother or father anymore. Or maybe their children. Uh, whoever it was in their family that was still part of the Jewish way of worship. They had to cut off all connection. What's happened now? Then all of a sudden these individuals in Jerusalem can't make a living. They can't work. Nobody will buy from them. Nobody will sell to them. So what does the church do? The early church, and believe me, they were not communists in the early church. There were individuals that of, other, of their own free will had a desire and had the ability to help those who needed help. And so you'll find a man in the chapter before, a man by the name of Barnabas. He had land, he sold it, he brought the money, he laid it at the apostles' feet. He said, I don't need this, these folks do and so I'm going to give it to the apostles, and I'm going to entrust it to them to take care of the saints of God. That man had a pure motive. That man just simply wanted to help where he could help. He didn't need the money. The church needed the money, and so he laid it at the apostles' feet. A wonderful example for us. Maybe God has given you more than you need. And if you see a need in the house of God and among the people of God, you ought to try to meet that need. You may be in a circumstance where you need to receive the help from the church of God. And if so, so be it. Uh, but anyway, this obviously impresses Ananias and Sapphira. I'm sure that word spread through the church in Jerusalem. Do you know what Barnabas just did? You know, he gave a large sum to the apostles. You know, when somebody gives, especially a significant amount, it's hard to keep that quiet. Sometimes people give anonymously. They don't want it known. They don't want it told about. They just simply want to quietly give and do uh, the Lord's service without uh, recognition, without fame, any of those things. And that's exactly how we ought to want to do it. If we're going to give and do for the house of God, we shouldn't blast the trumpet so all men will see how we're doing it. We ought to just simply do so, uh, give with simplicity as the word of God tells us. Well, anyway, I'm sure word of it spread. I think Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted the same commendation that uh, this man Barnabas, but they didn't have the heart of charity that Barnabas had. 
They wanted the attention, but they didn't want to give up all the resources. And notice what Peter says in verse 4. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, notice this, but unto God. So Peter just says, you didn't have to give everything. It was yours when you owned it. It was yours when you sold it. You weren't obligated to give all of it. That tells me right there they weren't communists. <laughs> they didn't require everything of everybody. He says it was in your power to give it or not give it according to however you desired. He says, but here's what's happened. You have lied not to men. That tells me he came in there and said, this is the land we sold. Here's the money from it, and it's all here. <laughs> he says, you've lied to the Holy Ghost. And now he says, you've lied to God. You know what that tells me? Very clearly that the Holy Ghost is God. And so here the apostles let them know that they've lied to God by lying to the Holy Ghost. And it says, and Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. I kind of, <laughs> when I read that, it's not funny, obviously. I mean, Ananias loses his life over this. I kind of wonder at times if, if we were caught in our covetousness, especially if we, in our, even our own minds, were covetous, but also at least wanted to brag, that, well, I'm doing such a good thing for the house of God by giving whatever I give. If, if we started dropping down dead for that, I, I just wonder how many of us would, would still be alive. But anyway, it says the young man arose, wound him up, <laughs> and carried him out, and buried him. And about three hours later, what happens? His wife didn't know what occurred. She comes in, and she's questioned as well, and she lies as well. And the same men that carried out her husband, they carry her out as well. As you go on in the book of Acts, again, you're going to find the Holy Spirit very, very evident in the lives of the apostles. Acts chapter 13, we find that Paul is a member by this time of the church at Antioch. And they're gathered together at the church at Antioch. It says there were certain prophets and teachers, and it goes down and, and lists some of them. And it says, as they ministered to the Lord, verse 2 of Acts chapter 13, and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, the Holy Ghost spoke. This isn't the Father speaking. This isn't the Son speaking. This is the Holy Ghost speaking. What does he say? He says, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So the Holy Ghost says to the church there, you are to separate to me. The church is to separate to the Holy Ghost. He says, Saul and Barnabas, he says, to the work whereunto I have called them. So once again, we see personality here in God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit speaks to the church. God the Holy Spirit says, separate to me. He says, and I want you to separate to me these men for the work which I have called them. This is the work that God the Holy Spirit calls them to, once again, in unity with God the Father and God the Son. But it's God the Holy Spirit who is going to actively speak to the church here at Antioch. And it'll be God the Holy Spirit that guides the Apostle Paul throughout his ministry. How do we know that? Because in Acts chapter 16, we're going to find that God the Holy Spirit will not allow the Apostle Paul to go and preach just wherever he wants to. See, men of God ought to inquire of the Lord where it is that they're to go and where they're to minister. When Little Union Church, almost 12 years ago, uh, issued the call to me to come and be your pastor, I didn't automatically accept just because Little Union called. That was between y'all and the Lord when y'all made the call. And once the call was made, there became a, trans a time between me and God where we had to speak. Now, obviously, as you were searching and I was coming... I was praying and asking the Lord his will. But I tell you what, when the call came, it became extremely serious. Uh, the Lord and I had a lot of conversations in the two weeks between the call and the answer. Uh, I felt like I knew what the Lord wanted, but I wanted confirmation. So for two weeks, I would walk the streets of our little town. And I would walk miles and miles at night up until the wee hours of the morning talking to the Lord. I, I'm surprised the law wasn't called on me for all the walking I did and wondering what in the world was this crazy man out doing talking. Uh, I was talking to the Lord to try to find out where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to be? See, in my life I have done what Jonah has done. I've gone to places where God didn't send me. Or rather yet, I've done like Jonah and I would not go where God would send me. And God made my life a misery. I can recall a year of my life where I wasn't where I was supposed to be. 
And for an entire year, my life was so miserable. I couldn't wait finally for the door of opportunity to come again so I could get to the place where God was sending me. So from that, I learned, just do what the Lord wants you to do. And if you'll do that, uh, your life will go well. That doesn't mean there'll be no problems. There'll be no mountains. There'll be no valleys. Uh, uh, there'll be no issues. Obviously, there have been. But this is one thing I've learned, that God has been with me in all of those things. But in that year where I was disobedient, I felt like God was totally devoid of me in my life. That I was separated from Him and that I didn't have His help. Now I know the Bible tells me that He'll never leave me nor forsake me. But I sure felt like He had left me and He had forsaken me because I'd been disobedient to Him. Anyway, here in Acts chapter 16, it says, Paul came to Derbe and Lystra and behold a certain disciple was there named Timotheus. The son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek. So here we find where Timothy and Paul are gathered together. And after these men began to preach, and the churches are established in the faith and increase in number daily, it says, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. So here Paul has a desire to go to Asia and what does it say? The Holy Ghost, he was forbidden. God, the Holy Ghost, said no. As we looked a few weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, you're going to find that the Apostle Peter had a ministry in Asia and also the next place, Bithynia. So God, the Holy Spirit, was not ignoring Asia or Bithynia, but he was just letting Paul know this is not your ministry. This is not where you're supposed to go. That tells me that God can tell his people, no, this is not where you're supposed to be. This is not where you're supposed to go. You're to obey. And so Paul, to his credit, he pauses. Okay, I'm not supposed to go to Asia. So he says, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed. That means they desired to go into Bithynia. They began that journey. But the Spirit suffered them not. Now, how it was that Paul was told by the Holy Spirit, you can't go here and you can't. I don't know exactly how that transpired. But Paul got the message. <laughs> and then it says, and a vision appeared to Paul. Verse 9 in the night, there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. You know what that tells me? That the Holy Ghost that said no to Asia, that said no to Bithynia, it was the Holy Spirit that gave Paul that vision. And in that vision, here he saw a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And what did Paul say? We knew assuredly that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And now the church at Philippi will come into existence. We have the book of Philippians because Paul the Apostle listened to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter uh, 16 when he was told no about Asia and no about Bithynia. And yes to this place called Macedonia or Philippi. As you read again through the book of Acts, you'll find in Acts chapter 10, kind of a backwards event of Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes down upon the apostles. They began to preach. Men began to hear in their own tongue. And then at the end of all of that, as the apostle Peter is preaching that very convicting message about Jesus, the Son of God, who was at the right hand of God the Father, seated on the throne of his father David, those individuals that were pricked in their heart, what did they say? Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. The Bible lets us know that about 3,000 were added to the church. And when they were baptized, what happened? The Spirit of God came upon them. Now, they were already born of the Spirit of God. What does that mean that the Holy Ghost fell upon them? It means uh, the Spirit came into their lives in a manifest way to lead them, to guide them, to help them, to support them, to comfort them. In other words, the Spirit was assuring them that the decision they had made to follow the Lord Jesus Christ was the right decision. That even though they were going to lose the loss of fellowship of friends and family among the Jewish nation, it would be okay because God the Holy Spirit, God the Comforter, would be with them throughout their journey. That's essentially what happened after their baptism. But in Acts chapter 10, the Spirit does it the other way. Acts chapter 10, the Apostle Peter is preaching to a bunch of Gentiles. And while he's preaching, the Spirit comes upon those men. Cornelius and all his household. Now it's clear if you read Acts chapter 10 with an open mind, Cornelius is already a child of God, born of the Spirit of God. That's why he's praying. That's why he's giving alms. That's why he's a just man. And that's why he's a man that feared God. 
Why? Because God had already introduced himself to him. He just didn't know about the Lord Jesus Christ and the finished work of redemption. But God tells him uh, that he's descended Joppa for one named Simon who was also dwelling at the house of Simon the Tanner by the seashore. And this man Cornelius obeyed what God commanded him. And the apostle Peter, he goes down with certain other to Caesarea after God had to get his attention. And he goes and he preaches the gospel. And as he's preaching to these men, in the middle of the sermon, before they're baptized, the Holy Ghost comes upon those men the same way it did to those in Acts chapter 2 who received the gift of the Holy Ghost after their baptism. These men received the gift of the Holy Ghost prior to their baptism. Why? I believe for the benefit of Peter and those other Jews that were on the scene. Because that's when Peter finally says, Can any forbid water? The Holy Ghost has come upon them just like he has us. Can any of us here forbid water that they would be baptized? Obviously none could and they were baptized. Now in the next chapter, Peter's called into question by the Jewish believers about all that transpired down at Caesarea. And he just lets them know God was in this. And those that were with him defended that. And of course there was no question about it going forward. So God the Holy Spirit, again very active in the book of Acts. Leading uh, the apostle Peter down to Caesarea. Leading the apostle Paul as we saw in Acts 16 to Philippi. What I love about that is that tells me that he not only will and can lead me. He will also lead God's children that are hungering and thirsting after either lead them to the place where they can be filled or lead individuals to them so that they might be filled. And God has done both throughout the book of Acts and throughout all the word of God. Anyway, as we began to think more about the spirit of God in time is quickly running out we find that in John chapter 14 we've already quoted this the Lord Jesus Christ makes it clear that one of the functions of the Holy Spirit one of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to comfort you and me and you and I live in a world that is obviously a world of darkness a world of despair a world that uh, brings fear if we are not careful I mean we all lived through that the past few years in particular as we were afraid of a virus that couldn't be seen that might take our lives. And then some of us are concerned about the remedy that men have come up with for this, uh, um, this disease. Some of us were concerned about government control that uh, seemed to be taken during all of this. There was fear on every side about every aspect, uh, depending on where your mind was over the past few years during the pandemic. If you weren't careful, you'd be overwhelmed with fear. And so it was important in that time, as it is in all time, to keep our minds centered in the Word of God. Uh, the Bible lets us know that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. And if the time comes that we're gripped with fear to the point we're not able to act, then we need to step back and realize that I don't have a sound mind right now. Something is gripping me that I should not allow to grip me, and I'm not allowing the Spirit of God to lead and guide in my heart and soul as He ought to. Now, I recognize he's sovereign and he can overwhelm me, but uh, that doesn't mean that he always will. He can just simply reach down and force it, or he can quietly lead, or sometimes just withdraw and let us come to the end of our rope and hopefully come to realization on our own. Anyway, here in John chapter 14, Jesus lets the disciples know that he's going away. It's just a fact. It's, it's, it's certain. It's, it's done. And they have to come to terms with the fact that the man that they have followed now for three and a half years is not going to be with them any further. That The day is coming that they're going to have to take steps in their ministerial journey and Jesus will not be walking with them. That they're going to have to go on their own. Now, when he says you're going to go on your own, obviously he wouldn't be there in physical form. Notice what he says in verse 16 of John chapter 14. I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Now notice what Jesus says about the comforter. He says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that means the presence of Jesus for this time has been a great comfort to the disciples 
So Jesus says, I am going away, and when I go away, I'm going to pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Somebody is going to take the uh, responsibility that I've had for the last few years in your presence, and in my absence, he's going to continue bringing the comfort that you need. Remember what the Lord told the disciples in Matthew chapter 28 is he's letting them know all power is given to me both in heaven and earth. He says, you're to go therefore into all the world. They're to teach, they're to baptize and continue teaching. He says, and you're to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then he concludes this. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, how is he with us? In the form of the Holy Spirit, who is the other comforter, he says, who will abide with us forever. He says in verse 26, the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Have you ever stepped back and thought about Matthew who had been with the Lord as you read his, uh, uh, his account fairly early into the ministry, but he wasn't one of the first apostles. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they'd been following the Lord a little bit longer than Matthew. I don't ex I'd have to go back and do the calculations of time frame, but Matthew wasn't the first, but he early enough into it. John records his gospel many years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now Mark, he records the gospel really according to Peter. So John Mark is told by Peter the things that happened in the life of Jesus, and Mark records it. Luke is Paul's gospel. It is Dr. Luke that records for us the virgin conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So medical doctors in the future that said it's not possible, a medical doctor is the one recorded for us that it is indeed possible it did happen. But so here is Luke, who's a contemporary of Paul, who wasn't, Paul wasn't there in the life of Jesus. Paul was called on the Damascus Road sometime after Jesus left this world. How is it that Paul telling Luke, Luke could write down the life of Jesus for us and we can have complete confidence in the accuracy of what was written? How is it that uh, Mark listening to Peter could get all that story straight? You know, I listen to a lot of stories. I enjoy listening to stories when they're interesting. Uh, and um, I like to inquire. I like to learn. And I try to remember as best I can. There's things that I've been told about folks uh, that have long been gone from this congregation. And I, I'm, I love to hear those stories. And I hope that I remember them accurately. But I know sometimes I don't. There's things I've heard about uh, family uh, history that I know I'm probably getting mixed up on which side of the family this all happened. And now... I don't have any living uh, grandparent anymore, so I can't go back and, and check the sources that knew those things. And there's a lot of things that I wish I had written down now because my memory's getting a little foggy on those things. So how can I trust that Paul, who wasn't there, told Luke accurately what happened in the life of Jesus? How can I trust that John Mark pinned down what Peter said accurately uh, several years after uh, Jesus had left this world. How do I know that Matthew remembered it all correctly? How do I know that John, in his aged years, memory probably starting to slip somewhat, is uh, writing it all down correctly? How do I know that? Well, number one, I can go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and read about the Old Testament writers. Because in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he says, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. How did the prophets of the Old Testament write down what they wrote down? They were moved by the Holy Ghost to do so. You know what that tells me? That the inspired word of God, this word that is God breathed, which person in the Godhead breathed out the word of God? God the Holy Ghost. Now he's not just some impersonal force that seems to not have a clue of what's going on. He's very attuned to what's happening. He was able to tell it to Moses. Moses is the one that wrote Genesis chapter 1 uh, several generations after it had happened. I mean, just read the book of Genesis all the way down until you get to Exodus and finally you're introduced to Moses. How many years had passed by from the time that Adam walked the earth until Moses was born? And then Moses is in his 80s uh, when the children of Israel are taken out of the land of Egypt and sometime in there, Moses begins to pen the book of Genesis. How does he know what happened in the garden? How did he know what happened to Enoch? 
How did he know about the life of Abraham and that he left the land of Ur of the Chaldees at age 75? How could he be so specific at age 86 he would have a son? He gives very specific uh, ages. Look at Genesis chapter 5. He tells us about ten generations of men there. And how that all, ten, all nine of those ten died. Enoch was not for God took him. And it's in Hebrews chapter 11 that we find out what happened. Enoch, he was, by faith he was translated that he should not see death. So all those men in Genesis chapter 5, with the exception of Enoch, he gives us, how, he gives us their ages. In fact, to this point, he tells us how old they were when their firstborn son was born. And then how many years they lived after that son was born. How did Moses know all of that? Uh, I mean, you would think from the time that it was told to Abraham, and Abraham told Isaac, and Isaac told Jacob, and Jacob told Joseph, and Joseph told his children. Don't you think some of the details would have gotten mixed up and forgotten and lost and all of that? If it was left up to men, it would have. But the Holy Ghost, who is the third person of the Godhead, was able to preserve for us and then move holy men of God to write the things that we have here in the Word of God. And if he did it in the Old Testament, do you think he stopped in the New? He did not. So he guided the mind of Matthew. He guided the mind of John Mark. He guided the mind of Luke. And he guided the mind of John. Just like he guided the mind of the Apostle Paul. Now Paul, as you read his epistles, he's writing letters to churches that are inspired writings. Paul wasn't always 100% certain whether those things were inspired or not. Because there are some things that he wrote in the book of Corinth. He says, I don't know if I have the Spirit or not. As he wrote those things. So Paul wasn't always 100% sure when he was inspired and when he wasn't inspired. Uh, but here we have it. Which tells me it was inspired. We have the inspired, preserved word of God to this day. Psalm 12 tells us that the word of God. It's pure. It's as silver tried in a furnace of earth seven times. In other words, it's been tried so much it could not be any more pure. It's been kept and preserved from this generation forever. Well, I'm thankful to know that the same one that brings me comfort in my life was able to keep these words. And notice again what he says. The, Holy, the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. See, Jesus is just letting the apostles know, I don't trust your memory so well. So the comforter, he's going to bring all things to remembrance of the things that I have said to you. So then we can find that in the life of Peter and the life of the other apostles, when they began to speak, they weren't just speaking from their own memory. They were speaking as God moved upon them in the form of God, the Holy Ghost. And there they were preserving for us forever the words and promises of our God that bring us great comfort as we live in this life. Time is about gone. I want to turn to one more place. This is a very important function of the Holy Ghost. We haven't talked about we, just briefly that the, it is the Holy Ghost that gives us eternal life. John chapter 3. We find that the, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Nicodemus. Says except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, capital S, cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he lets him know that it, the Spirit moves as he desires, moves sovereignly. He borns again whom he will, where he will, and when he will. I can't control that. I've had people actually ask me, should I pray that God would regenerate my child? I'm not going to pray that prayer. I'm going to trust that the sovereign God who elected us before the world began and that redeemed us through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ will sovereignly regenerate his children at the appointed time. I'm not going to rush him. He's not going to do it ahead of time. He's not going to be behind the time. He's going to be right on time. And so I'm just going to leave that to his sovereign power. Who God who's faithfully created this world, God who's sovereignly uh, called us, God who's sovereignly redeemed us, I'm going to trust Him to regenerate us at the right time. And so I don't see the point in praying for that specific thing. I know He's going to do it. I don't know when He'll do it. I just know He will. And I'm going to leave it to Him and trust Him to do it. If my children belong to Him, I'm going to trust God to bring them into divine life when it suits Him. 
Now, there's times I wish God would do things more quickly. But anyway, that's a whole other side. So we know the Spirit of God is the one that gives us life. But in Romans, the 8th chapter, we find that it's the Spirit of God that guides us. He says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. I want to focus on that. As many as are led by the Spirit of God. As I've already mentioned, I sought his leadership as I was going to move here. Years before that, a church called me to go to Illinois. I felt the impression to go. And so I went. In between the time of pastoring there and pastoring here, three other churches called me to be pastor. One of which I felt impressed to do. I served them for a year. Two of those I did not feel that impression. And so far that's borne out to be the right answer in my life. And that's not to say that I can always discern the Lord's will perfectly. There's been times I've messed up. There's been times I've made mistakes. There's been times that I have been misguided in what I thought was the leadership of the Holy Spirit. But thankfully, in the main, and some say, well, how do I know when it's the, all I know to say is you'll know. That's been my experience. The closer you live with the Lord, the closer you're in tune with him by reading his word, the closer you're in tune with him by praying to him and speaking with him, and the closer you are by coming to the house of God and being around godly people who are seeking the Lord as well, I think you'll just know when you know. Um, that's, that's the only answer I really have about that. It's not rocket science, but I don't have a recipe that this is exactly how God is going to speak to you and this is how you're going to know about it. He may speak to you in a little different way uh, than he speaks to me. I have to speak to my children differently. They have different personalities and what I can say to one to reach them won't work with another one. And so I have to be different as a parent with them uh, and I trust God has to do the same with us. So I can't tell you exactly how it is that God will lead you, but God the Holy Spirit will lead you he says for as many as are led by the spirit of God they are the sons of God and he says you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry Abba father I love that verse notice again he says we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear if you're in bondage and you're uh, constantly living in fear that is not from the Lord uh, that's from the pits of hell trying to keep you restricted and bonded uh, so that you, in bonds and chains so that you cannot move forward in your uh, discipleship. Uh, however, if you're following the Spirit of God, he says, that's not something that produces fear. In fact, it does just the opposite. What does the Spirit of God bring? The Spirit of adoption. What does that mean? The Spirit of inclusion into the family of God. He says, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, I'm thankful the Spirit of God comes and gives us divine life. But I'm even, I'm not going to say I'm more thankful, but I'm ever so grateful that the Spirit doesn't come and give us life and just leave us where we're at. But that the Spirit also comes, as he says here, and bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Does it not help you in your daily walk here as you live day by day in an ever-changing world that's dark, wickedness is on the increase, does it not help you to feel like you're part of the family of God? It certainly does me. I hear this verse says, the Spirit itself, not some other, but God the Holy Spirit itself, make it, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And lastly, in this same chapter, he says, likewise, the Spirit also, verse 26, helpeth our infirmities. The reality is, while we live here, we're going to be afraid. But thankfully, the Spirit comes and and through him we do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but rather the spirit of inclusion in the family of God. And now he says, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. We're all infirm to different degrees. Some people are mentally infirm. Some are physically. Some spiritually infirm. Some of us go through times when we may be all three. But thankfully, God is not limited by our infirmities. God the Holy Spirit is not constrained just because we're infirm. 
There be maybe individuals in this life that maybe their mind never develops beyond maybe the mind of a two-year-old child. But do you think that God the Holy Spirit is limited by that? When it was God the Holy Spirit that entered the womb of Elizabeth and regenerated John the Baptist. And when the child leaped, uh, Elizabeth knew by God the Holy Spirit telling her that the child leaped for joy at the salutation of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. If God the Holy Spirit can communicate to Elizabeth that the child leaping in her, it was not the normal kicking of a child in the mother's womb. It was a child that was leaping and leaping for joy because the mother of the Messiah had entered into the dwelling. If God the Holy Spirit can communicate to that child and tell the mother why, God can reach even the infirm mind of a little bitty child or somebody maybe who's very old that never has moved beyond the mind of a child. You may have infirmities of the body. God's not limited by that. God the Holy Spirit can still take care of you in that situation. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. I've heard it said in past times, I haven't heard this in a long time, that brother had such a gift for prayer. And I've heard people that you could just tell their, their relationship with the Lord was so close that when they prayed publicly, you just felt like they brought you a little closer to the Lord as they prayed. I don't have that gift, but there's, there's people that I've heard that when I, I just knew that with their, they walk closely with the Lord. But even them, none of us know what we should pray for as we ought. We're going to miss the mark. There's going to be things we pray for that we don't need. There's going to be things we pray for that we're praying for for the wrong reason. There's going to be things that we ask for that are wrong, even though they may not seem wrong in the service because it's just not in the will and purpose of God. But thankfully, the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as well, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You know what that verse just says? <laughs> Let's put it this way. It just says that when you don't know how to pray the right way that you should or for the things that you ought to or for the reasons that you ought to, it's almost as though the Spirit is going to intercept that prayer and take care of it and clean it up and bring it to God the right way and make sure that it's in accordance with the will of God. Now, as we've heard it said, there's three answers to prayer. Yes, no, not yet. And sometimes I've had all, I mean, I've had all three of those answers. But thankfully, even when I'm in the moments of despair, in the pits of darkness and in the times where it feels like, I don't even know, it, it's so confusing I don't even know how to start to get my way out or even what to ask God for to get me out of the situation have you been there I certainly have well I'm thankful in those times to know that even though I don't even know where to begin that the Holy Spirit who is the third person in the Godhead he knows exactly where I'm at but he also knows exactly where the will of God is and he knows how to hopefully get well, he knows how to get me and the will of God back together. Now, does that mean I'm going to always obey and follow? No. But thankfully, I know he has that ability. So the Spirit of God, it's not just some impersonal force. God, the Holy Spirit, thank God, is the one who has moved men to write the word of God. It was God, the Holy Spirit, that brought all things to remembrance that Jesus had said to the disciples. It's God, the Holy Spirit, that gives us divine life. Uh, based upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God the Holy Spirit that guides us and leads us and comforts us in the dark hours of our life. It's God the Holy Spirit that will remove the spirit of bondage again to fear, but instead give us the spirit of adoption where we feel to be part of the family of God and then we cry out in, in great adoration and thanksgiving, Abba, Father. It's God the Holy Spirit in the lonely hours of the night, in the darkness and the confusion of our minds. You know, I often wondered what it was like for my great-grandmother in the, in, the, in the darkness of her confusion 
Thank God that in her confusion, God the Holy Spirit was not confused. And if I ever uh, live uh, to be in such a way as that, and I hope to God that I do not, but if I do, I take solace in this, even in the confusion of Alzheimer's and dementia, whatever our trouble will be, thank God, God the Holy Spirit, just like God the Father and God the Son is not constrained or limited, but can reach down to the heart and mind of every one of His children and give them the solace that we belong to Him. And he belongs to us. And the day is coming that we'll be with him. And then ultimately we'll be reunited body, soul, and spirit. And then be together forever with him. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. And there's a lot more that he does. And a lot of times he's not center stage. He's overlooked in our consideration of the Godhead. But never forget, God the Holy Spirit, he is on the same plane as God the Father and God the Son. And he is a very integral part of our life every single day that we dwell upon this earth. He is the one that preserves us. He's the one that keeps us. He's the one that guides us. And he's the one that keeps us in constant communication with heaven itself. May God bless you today as our prayer.